RC Plane Lab, a podcast for anyone interested in RC airplanes. We'll share tips and tricks on how to build models and talk about successful flights, epic crashes, and everything in between. Visit us at rcplanelab.com to sign up for our email list and to ask us questions. You can also text us or leave us a voicemail at 818-351-9846. Please help us out by rating and reviewing us in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now here are your hosts, Ron and Tom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the RC Plane Lab podcast. This is Ron. I'm Tom. Welcome to part two of our Nitro engine uh, series, I guess you could call it. Uh, In our first episode, we kind of went over Nitro engines, glow engines, if you will, Uh, talked about how they work. Uh, We talked about how to set one up. Uh, We discussed glow plugs and uh, and how to start them. Um, That one ran a little bit long, so we decided to split this into two episodes. In this uh, this episode, we're going to talk about how to tune them. Uh, we'll talk about proper storage and care, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit about fuel. Um, you know, what we use to fuel them, the difference in the nitro content, and uh, what's actually in the fuel that we use. Um, and then kind of whatever else we get to. I don't know uh, exactly where the conversation will go, but we'll see. So yeah, you never know. <laughs> you don't, that's for sure. Um, so tuning. Let's talk about tuning a, a glow engine or a nitro engine. Okay. Oh, so, you want me to just get after it? Huh? Yeah, just get after it. You uh, <laughs> let, let me know. Okay. Uh, so yeah, lots of uh, lots of information. Um, uh, it's a it's a skill that has developed over you know potentially years of uh, of being in the hobby, um, but eventually, if you fly a, a model airplane that's powered by a, a glow fuel. Uh, eventually you're going to have to tune it. Um, either it's going to not be tuned perfectly from the factory or as parts wear in and it starts making more power, you'll have to add more fuel, so on and so forth. So eventually you're going to have to get um, comfortable, if you will, uh, turning the needles on that carburetor. Now, one thing uh, I will say, though, before we get in, in too much to that, so, like I said before, I started out, like, the first Nitro things I ever had was uh, Nitro cars, or Nitro T-Maxes, really, the, the monster trucks. Before mm-hmm. I really knew you, but we were introduced way back when, um, right. I remember you tuned my truck, and I was so impressed with how you got, I mean, you had that thing running better than I ever could. I, I, I don't <laughs> have the knack, I guess, for tuning those as, as well as you do. Um, okay. But one thing I have noticed, though, like with airplanes versus like the nitro cars and stuff, airplanes are much more forgiving. You don't have to be, you know, dead on like you do with cars to get that quick throttle response, um, you know, to go from idle to, to full throttle. So it's I, I can handle tuning an airplane to get to the point where I can fly it. Uh, but mm-hmm. you can really tune them and get them to where they're running just absolutely perfectly how they need to be running. So um, that's yeah. why I want you to talk about this. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm comfortable talking about that. Okay. Uh, so first, first we should we should uh, start with uh, let, let's say we're we're dealing with a new engine. Uh, new engines, you know, today's new, uh, engines. Um, you know they're they're built with uh, you know these really really tight tolerances and they're designed to be um, broken in if you will a certain way and always follow the manufacturer's uh, directions. I'll always you know default to the manufacturer's instructions on on tuning and break in and and maintenance and all that and what plug to use, which we already talked about. But uh, but I'm what I'm what I'm really talking about is is once we're past the break in stage. An engine can be kind of hard to tune when it's breaking in because parts are parts are wearing in. You know, tolerances are changing. It's going to change the demand for how, how much fuel it needs. Uh, so, an engine that is in the midst of break in um, should be tuned how the manufacturer tells you to tune it. Um, but then, once the engine is broken in and is you know as part of your regular uh, flying uh, repertoire, if you will, um, the it, it will require you know, occasional tuning. And uh, the way I do it is, uh, you know, since I've been doing it for such a long time, I've sort of developed an ear. You know, I can I can kind of hear if an engine is running correctly. Um, takes years of experience to sort of develop that. Some people develop it, you know, 
quicker than others. Uh, some people, you know, have no desire. They just want to go out there and fly. Uh, and nothing wrong with that because there's usually always, not always, but there's usually somebody at the field um, who can help them out with tuning. And at our field, a lot of times that's me. And I'm <laughs> yeah. fine with that. You go up and down the line and, and adjust many airplanes when we're out there. <laughs> well, I don't voluntarily do it. I don't. I don't touch someone's airplane unless they, you know, unless they ask for my help. And right. I'm not that yeah. guy out there that says, "Hey, it's you know, you're you're running it too rich." I'm not that guy. If you no, want my pe- help, people come up to you, and you you don't get a lot of flying time in because when you go out <laughs> to the field, you do a lot of work. Yeah, and and really, you know, truth be told, I I enjoy that because you know, like I said, I enjoy the tinkering. Yeah, you know, I think. I think more so than the flying, but at any rate, uh, so I've developed this this sort of uh, ear that I can that I can uh, I can tell when an engine is running, you know, lean or or rich just by the sound it's making, um, and then I'll combine that experience with you know I'll look for the exhaust and lots of little clues that I can put together um, to determine you know what what an engine needs. Uh, but for folks who are just sort of, uh, you know, maybe maybe just getting into it, or they don't, you know, they don't want to develop that intimate relationship with the needle valves, um, tuning by RPM is is probably um, what I would recommend most folks do uh, until they, you know, develop that that ear, if you will. Uh, so that requires a tachometer, and and uh, I'll describe the process. So once we've got an engine running. You know, you let it let it warm up, you know, 10, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, whatever. Uh, let it get up to temperature. Let all those parts expand to the their normal operating range, and then uh, and then get to tuning. So uh, so what I what I do uh, when I'm going to tune by RPM is I'll have my tachometer handy, and uh, I'll uh, you know while I have somebody restraining the airplane. Uh, I'll run run the throttle up to full throttle. Uh, if it, if I just want to make a note of this, if it doesn't, if you can't get it to run at full throttle, then you will sort of have to rely a little bit on that uh, that sort of technique that I that I use all the time, which is you know sound and and looking at the exhaust. Uh, so there, there's probably a reason you can't get it to run up to full throttle or you can't get it to run while the stick is at full throttle. Um, more often than not, it's because it's too rich. And you can tell it's too rich. Um, a dead giveaway is lots and lots and lots of uh, smoke and maybe even raw unburnt fuel coming out of the exhaust. So that, you know, if, if you have that issue going on uh, and it's just blubbering, 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 and you get the stick to full throttle, it just eventually dies... I uh, probably got to lean the needle a little bit at a time until you can at least get it to run with the throttle set wide open. Uh, and if it's too lean, it does just the opposite. It's a lack of smoke and very, very high RPM and dies usually uh, speeds up and then dies uh, before you get to full throttle. So that's one giveaway for a lean engine. Uh, but anyway, you get it so that it can run at full throttle and then whip out your tachometer and take a reading. And then... Um, gradually uh, turn the needle, the, the high-speed needle, that's usually the longer one, more often than not on the left-hand side of the engine. Uh, most engines today have remote needles to get you away from the prop, which is nice. Um, anyway, get it up to full throttle, whip out your tachometer and take a reading, and then watch that RPM uh, as you move the needle. So let's, let's say uh, I always try to go richer first. Because you don't want to, if you have a lean engine and you go leaner, you're going to potentially damage the engine. So as it's running at full throttle and you've got your tachometer, you know, taking a, a reading on the on, you know, at the prop, you uh, richen the needle, and that's usually out, okay, on that main needle, and then watch the RPM. If the RPM climbs, you know you were, you know, you know you were too lean. So you want to keep moving that needle out until the RPM drops, right? And then once it does that, then you can slowly begin dialing that needle in until the RPMs no longer climb with each needle adjustment. And once you've reached that point, back the needle off a couple hundred RPM on your tack and you're ready to go. That's, that's in a nutshell, how you tune by RPM. Questions?
<laughs> no, I th- I think I follow along pretty well. So okay, that, that's good. To and know. it's just uh, yeah, and it's just uh, I mean, like I said, it's a uh, and over time, if you do that enough, you'll you'll sort of develop that. You know, you'll be able to tell. You know, you'll be able to hear when the RPM is climbing, and then when it's not climbing anymore, you you'll be able to hear that. Yeah, so the the handy little tachometers that we carry with us, um, they actually work pretty well. And you can yeah. you set them to you know how many blades the propeller is, uh, right. because as that's working, it uh, it counts every time the blade goes by, which obviously right. has to be divided by two for RPM if that's a two blade or prop, or has to be divided by three or four depending on what kind of prop you have. So, yeah, they're they're pretty smart little tools you have with you too that that really do a good job of letting you know what you're uh, what you're running at. Right, and I just want to you know um, something you can kind of put in your toolkit if you will is a uh, you know the, the sound that a that a rich uh, or an extremely rich running two stroke makes it sounds sort of like a four stroke because in, in essence what it's doing is it's firing on every other stroke kind of like a four stroke would so a two stroke that's making that kind of four strokey kind of a, a rough running sound is usually an indication of of an engine that's running rich. And yeah, so that's how that Telemaster was when I first got that started a couple weeks ago. It was yeah. running very rich, and it was doing that same thing. You know, I mean, that that yeah. plane was jumping around quite a bit. Um, it, it it runs very rough. Yeah, with the gasoline engines, it's it's harder still because uh, they don't have all the oil that these that these glow fuel motors have in the fuel, so they don't generate the smoke like these like these glow fuel engines do. So it's harder to tell by, by, by sight if they're rich or lean. Yeah, but with that one, I could definitely tell, though, just by listening to it because it was it sounded very sad. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And it, I was amazed, like, when it was uh, when it was leaned out just a little bit. I mean, that it just got so smooth. And, I, I mean, I know it's right. gas versus electric or versus uh, nitro, but it's the same basic thing when it comes to that. It is. Um, it absolutely is. They, yeah. they do kind of run the same way. And so, yeah, if you yeah. hear that, and I, it almost sounds like it's, uh, well, like it's missing pretty much because it is. Yeah, exactly. um, and like I said, it just runs very rough. It's not made to run, uh, you know, firing every two revolutions. So right. that's that's a, a good indication that, yeah, you're you're very rich. Right. Yep. Uh, a properly, you know, a, a good running two-stroke will have a very smooth, even um, sound to it without sounding like it's screaming, if that yeah. kind of makes sense. No, I get it. Yeah. Uh, Especially after starting that one up, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So there's, so talking about the needles, uh, so there's a high-speed needle, right? That's the main one. That's the one that controls the main uh, mixture uh, you know, at the carburetor. And so the, the, the high-speed needle will affect the low-speed needle? Sometimes, but not always. It depends. Oh, really? It depends on the, yeah, it depends on, on the carburetor. It depends on the manufacturer. Um, lots of lots of factors go into that, but not always. I mean, I, I, I can't even say generally speaking because, I, you know, there are engines out there that, that the two circuits, uh, so the low-speed circuit and the high-speed circuit, are two completely different circuits, and one does not affect the other. Oh, okay. Uh, on, I always thought that's why you did the high speed first. So the high speed is, like I said, that main one, and on most engines, it's you know, like as if you're sitting in the cockpit, it would be on the left hand side of the engine in most cases. Um, the other speed, the other needle, uh, if it's a twin needle carburetor, there, there's there's twin needle carburetors, and then there's not twin needle carburetors. <laughs> uh, I know it gets really confusing, but uh, most engines today, most modern you know engines that are on the market today, they're going to have two needles. So I'm going to go ahead and stick with that, and then maybe I'll touch on the other ones briefly at the end. But uh, so there's the low speed needle on the right hand side usually of the engine, and what this controls is like the name implies, the low speed or the low speed circuit. So idle mixture, and usually this is where your transition sort of uh, gets. Uh, gets uh, dialed in is with the low speed needle. So once we've set the engine running uh, running good with the high speed needle at wide open, now it's time to set the idle mixture, uh, which which will also affect the transition. And the way I do that is, you know, 
I've got the high speed needle tune. It's running great at wide open throttle. It's making, you know, making good power. It's running smooth. Uh, it's getting plenty of fuel. Uh, then I'll back it off to idle. And the way I do it is um, before I get to that point, like I've got it, I've got it running at wide open and it's, it's, it's tuned to perfection. What I'll do if I can, if I have access to it, is I'll pinch the fuel supply line and it should pick up RPM and then if I keep holding on to it, die. Um, and the time it takes to do that is what I'll sort of listen for. Um, if it does it really, really, really fast, then I know it's probably a little on the lean side on the low speed needle. If I do that and it takes a couple of seconds, then I know I'm, I'm really close on the low speed. And it takes time to sort of develop that, but that's what I do first. So by um, pinching that, though, then you're putting it under a lean condition, and that's why it speeds up? Right, right. Because okay. it's uh, running out of fuel and getting hot, and it's advancing the timing and doing all these things because it's you know trying to run, but it's not. It speeds up, and then it runs out of fuel and dies. Same, okay. you know, same, like if you've ever been, like, to a, uh, oh, I don't know, a, a, a tractor-pulling event. Or, or like a drag race, you know, where they're where they're running these uh, high nitro cars. Like when they when they shut off the fuel, they always speed up before they before they die. Um, there's lots of reasons for that. I'm not going to get into it. But anyway, that's what these will do. Also, <laughs> okay. Uh, so so I I do that little test first, and that'll give me an idea if I'm close on the low speed needle or not. If it if it if I pinch the line and like immediately dies, then I know I'm probably a little bit on the lean side. Once I got the high speed dialed in and I do my little test, I'll bring it back to idle. And then uh, I don't use the tack anymore. I, I, I try not to get wrapped around the axle about trying to get the lowest RPM I can get at idle. I used to be that guy. I used to want it to just sit there and just, you know, barely turn over. But anymore, I kind of favor an engine that will stay running uh, in flight rather than one that dies unexpectedly. <laughs> so I'm okay with a slightly high idle as long as, you know, as long as it's idling low enough to not like keep flying the plane when I'm trying to land. Yeah. As long um, as you can still land it, you should be fine. Right. So, um, I'll back it down to what I feel is a comfortable idle and then I'll leave it there and I'll just let it idle. Um, and, and I'll watch or I'll listen to what it does. If it just happily keeps idling for, 20 seconds, 30 seconds or whatever, then my work is, is probably done. Um, but if it, uh, if it gradually kind of gradually slows down, slows down and then starts running rough and sounds like that, that rich condition, then I'll start, uh, adjusting the needle. Um, and so there's two different types of low speed needles. There's an air bleed and then there's a standard, uh, needle that's very similar to the high-speed needle. You know, in is leaner and out is richer. On an air bleed carburetor, and you can tell it's an air bleed because a low-speed uh, needle will uh, either cover or uncover an open orifice in the body of the carburetor, and it'll be very easy to see. And the instructions with your engine will actually tell you what type of carburetor it is. Uh, so on an air bleed, it the, you know the, it's backwards. So in is richer and out is leaner because you're not adjusting the fuel, you're adjusting the air. Does that make sense? Yeah, you. I get it. So like on the, the carburetors where you have the, the set screw on the side of the, uh, the actual carburetor itself, on the side of that, uh, what's the part that twists? What's that called? The throttle barrel? Yeah, the ones that are on the side. Sure. Yeah, I think that's what we're talking about. The, the, the part that the servo hooks up to, you know, where that goes oh, back yeah, and forth. Arm. Okay, so when it's on the side of that, like the 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 set screws on the side of that, what kind is that? Yeah, so if the if the needle is 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 like you said, is in the middle of that throttle arm, mm -hmm. that's a standard type, you know, standard type needle. You okay, know, and and it works like normal. You know, out is richer and in is leaner because what you're doing is it's a tapered seat that that needle is threading into, mm -hmm. and that seat is is uh, connected to the fuel circuit, not the air circuit. So okay. as you come out, it opens up the seat, allows more fuel. You go in, it closes off the seat and allows less fuel. Okay. So if it's the the air bleed screw, though, is that a screw yeah. or is that a needle? It's technically just a screw. 
that that either closes off or opens up, like I said, an orifice on the body of the carburetor. And you can tell usually the dead giveaway is that the screw um, is not part of the throttle arm assembly or in line with the with the main needle. It's it's usually like I said, just a screw on the side of the carb body that either goes in to close off a hole or comes out to open up a hole. Okay. I got you then. So it's, it's kind of easy to tell air. the difference on which kind you have when you look at them. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Usually on a, on a standard twin needle carburetor that operates, that's not an air blade, the two needles will be sort of, if you will, pointing at each other. Unless you have a remote needle, then, you know, all bets are out the window. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so but but anyway. are, are most of them going to be the air bleed or do you think they're going to, or does it even just depend completely on the motor? It, it it depends on the engine. Like uh, for a long time, in fact, I think OS still makes their their higher end engines. Like I think they're a, they're um, like AXs now. I think is what they are. Uh, those have the standard twin needle type carburetor, and then their FP series, which they're not FPs anymore. I think they're called um, LAs. I think uh, it's a it's a a more inexpensive engine, so there's not bearings on the crankshaft, things like that. Usually, those engines were equipped with the with the air bleed style carbs because they they cost less to manufacture. Oh, okay. Is there so, a, a plus or minus to either one of them, performance um, wise? I think I think a standard twin needle carburetor. It's been my experience that you can um, that you can really, really, really fine tune that they're, they're a little a lot finer in their adjustment. Um, but they are more complicated and they do take, you know, they do take more skill to get tuned really, really to the nth degree. Whereas okay. I think, I think the appeal of the air bleed carburetors is they're simpler to set up and they're, 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 uh, maybe not quite as sensitive to needle change, especially on the low speed. Um, so they, they may be, they may offer a little bit easier adjustment. Okay. Um, but you know, there's pros and cons to each one. Uh, and I, I don't really have a preference. Generally speaking, though, the air bleed carburetors are usually on engines that are that are a little bit more economical, so they have plain bearings on the crankshafts and things like that. Um, so something to think about. Like the uh, like the engine that's on the stick there uh, that uh, we're in the middle of recovering at your house, that has a uh, uh, an OSLA on it, which is one of those less expensive engines, and I believe that one has an air bleed carb on it. But it runs good. Yeah, it does. You uh, you've put a lot of time on that one. <laughs> yeah, it's got a, it's got a few hours. <laughs> Too bad it's blue. It doesn't match your plane anymore. I know. I know. I may have to strip it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, so that's that's kind of the long and short of of tuning. Um, uh, but just to get back on the low speed needle, you just you just basically you either richen it or lean it, depending on what type of needle you have. Uh, based on what it does at idle. So like I said, you know, I'll bring it back to idle and I'll let it idle forever, not forever, but for <laughs> a, a lengthy part of time. And I'll just listen and watch what the engine does. If it gradually slows down and kind of starts running rough and dies, then it's rich. Um, if I, when I get to idle, it speeds up and dies, then it's too lean. So then I, you know, I'll richen it up or lean it out in the other condition until, until I get it such that it will idle um, I would like to see an engine idle a whole tank of fuel. I mean, that's that would be like the the ideal, you know, reliable idle. Yeah, and I mean, and the reason you do that is because you don't want it to die when you're flying. If it dies when you're, you know, in the middle of a, a flight, depending on where you are, that could be disastrous. If you're high enough, if you're not, you know, at a, at a bad angle, you can come in and land a dead stick, right. but nobody wants to do that. What if I'm in the middle of the most epic inverted flat spin ever at idle and it dies and I need power to get out of that? Right. Yeah. So it's it's worth spending the extra few seconds, you know, because really right. I, it might be a minute or two. It doesn't take a long time to tune these, um, but it's no, better to do that really. and, and get it done correctly so you're flying with something you can trust. It's one of those right. things, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. Because if you exactly. don't do this, you can very easily crash, uh, which nobody yeah. wants. So the more 
the more time you spend making sure everything is done correctly. Same with pre-flight checks, same with, you know, every little thing that we do. Um, it's just good to make sure you give yourself that little extra insurance that what you yep. have is, is right, uh, what you have is going to perform the way it's supposed to perform and not let you down by means of costing you a bunch of money because it's now re-kitted. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. A, a good, a good reliable idol is, is, uh, is high on my, in, in fact, I, I would put a higher premium on a good quality, reliable idol than I will getting max power at, at wide open throttle. Uh, I put a higher premium on that, on that reliable idol. Yeah. Because so, usually you don't die when it's at full throttle. Well, I mean, let's, let's think about, you know, the situations where you would be at full throttle takeoff, which, yeah, that could be disastrous if it dies at takeoff. Um, you know, generally speaking, uh, the, the time that you're going to be at low or idle could potentially be the most disastrous if you lose power. Um, now, you know, arguments could be made one way or the other, but um, yeah, I, I put a higher premium. I, I'll put a little more effort into getting a good idle than I do at getting max power. Yeah. Just what I do. Yeah, you know, I think I would agree with that without digging too much into it, but that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, so once once I've got a good uh, a good quality idle, uh, the very last thing I'll check is the transition, uh, and that's just simply moving the stick from idle to wide open. Uh, it should make that transition. It should you know it should speed up smoothly. It shouldn't uh, it shouldn't hesitate. Uh, it shouldn't. You just want a good smooth transition from low power to high power. Um, and if you've got a good idle, if it's idling well, chances are the transition's going to be pretty close. Um, and it's going to depend on the manufacturer uh, of the engine, you know, getting back to, you know, one needle affecting the other. Uh, in, the, in the transition phase, that's where sort of on most carburetors, both of those needles will sort of play together. So I try not to make my adjustment on just one needle for transition purposes. Unless you have one of those really, really fancy three-needle carburetors that has a needle just for the transition. But I'm not going to talk about those. <laughs> I've never heard um, of those, so. Yeah, they're not very common. Um, but anyway, so if uh, if at idle, you know, I, I go to full throttle and it hesitates and and runs rough and kind of sputters and doesn't seem to want to get to full throttle right away, but eventually makes it, it's probably on the lazy or rich side because it's lazy. It's being lazy about getting to, you know, it's resisting. Ah, I don't want to go to full throttle. <laughs> it's prob yeah. probably rich. And, and what I'll do in that situation is I'll lean both needles a tiny, tiny bit each. And I try to go, I don't want to say equal amounts because usually... An eighth of a turn on the low speed needle does not equal an eighth of a turn on the high speed. Yeah. So I sort of play with both of them just a tiny little bit at a time. And it takes a you know, it takes time to get it right. Um, if it's not right. Um, but uh, but generally that's that's how, you know, if it if it's lazy on the transition, it's probably on the rich side. On the other hand, when you move the throttle to wide open and it immediately goes wide open and then dies. Well, chances are it's lean, probably on the low end, uh, in which case I'll richen up the low end. So when you say a tiny bit on the needles, are you talking about like a sixteenth of a turn? A sixteenth or less, yeah. I or mean, less. Because you've, you've already got a good quality idle, mm -hmm. right? You don't want to mess that up. And you've already tuned the high-speed needle, so you don't want to, you know, you don't want to make that overly lean, right? That's why... Whenever I tune the high-speed needle, I leave a little extra. Like I'll I'll tune it for you know for I don't want to say max RPM, but I'll go to max RPM and then I'll back that needle off towards the rich side um, to give me a little bit of a cushion to be able to fine-tune the transition if need be. So then, like when you're flying and you go to uh, you know unload the engine and you're not sitting there with so much pressure on it, just you know not actually moving through the air, does that? Like, does that have to come into consideration when you're tuning it? You know, do you go maybe, do you, does that lean it out? Does that richen it out? How does that work when you're actually flying? In the air, when, when, you know, now that you have the airplane, you know, moving through the air and you don't have that, uh, that, that load, if you will, 
on the engine like as if you were restraining it on the ground. Um, the engine will free up and it will usually gain, you know, up to, you know, four or 500, depending on the engine and the prop and all that and the speed and all that. Um, but it will gain RPM in the air. Uh, but if you've tuned it correctly on the ground, the needle, the needle setting should be optimum for any wide open throttle setting. So yes, the engine will usually pick up some RPM in the air. Um, but if you've, if you've tuned it correctly on the ground, uh, that will not be a problem. And like I said, on the high-speed needle, I always, always, and I can say always, um, attune on the on the safe side. You know, I'll, I'll get max RPM or, or, you know, max performance, and then I back it off on the rich side, minus a few hundred RPM as kind of a safety margin to allow me to fine-tune that transition and then also to, you know, there's just no reason to extract max power. I mean, most of our airplanes are overpowered today anyway. Yeah. <laughs> There's no reason to, to run them that hard. These modern engines, a lot of them are what we call ABC construction, um, aluminum, uh, brass, and chrome. So it's an aluminum piston in usually a chrome-lined brass sleeve, right? ABC. Okay. And, you know, how they develop their compression is basically... Um, it's a friction fit between the, the piston and the sleeve, especially at top dead center. So they, you know, the, the, the engine, most of the engines today don't use rings for compression. They just really? use that very, very tight fit. Yeah. So when, you know, when the aluminum piston is up to temperature, you know, aluminum expands at a greater rate than steel does. So as that engine comes up to temperature, that, you know, that aluminum piston swells because of the heat and then forms that, that tight, seal at the top to, that will help you create compression. Um, so is it tapered because, then or how does that work? It is. Yep. Yep. It's okay. called pinch. Yep. It's called pinch. So the, the sleeves are, are exactly like you said, they're tapered. I mean, we're talking, you know, very, very, very small, like less than thousands of an inch. Right. Yeah. But it is, it is tighter at the top than it is at the bottom. So yeah, as the piston moves up, you know, and when, when everything is at the proper temperature, it gets tighter, tighter, tighter. And that's what makes that compression instead of relying on a steel ring or, you know, well, a steel ring. <laughs> yeah. So because that's a mechanical, you know, a, an aluminum riding on chrome, you know, there's wear, right? So if yeah. I can... You know, if I can tune the engine so that it runs cool and helps to prevent that wear and make it last longer, that's what I'll do. Well, and especially because all the lubrication comes from the fuel. You know, it's right. not like a regular car engine that has an oil pump and oil built into it. Um, right. From how I understand it, the oil that's in the fuel actually goes not only in the like the upper cylinder, but it actually goes along the crankcase too and lubricates all that as it's going in. Right. Yeah, because the the crankshaft is hollow, like you know, like we talked about in episode or in the in the first part of this episode. Yeah. Um, so the fuel is carried, you know, down the the hollow cavity of that crankshaft, and then the spinning action sort of slings the oil, you know, all over those bearings and whatnot. Yeah, we don't we don't have a, a wet sump oil system like modern cars do with a pump that can circulate the oil. Yeah, it depend you know we depend on the oil that's in the fuel to do all that lubrication. So. Uh, why not run it just a little on the rich side so that we can get everything lubricated? Yeah. So I guess talking about kind of care on that one then, you know, because it's, it's better to run mm -hmm. them rich, it'll make them last longer. What are some other things like you need to know to take care of uh, an engine like that? So, you know, we're going to talk about fuel here in a little bit, but um, before we do that, I'll just say that the fuel that we use, it's methanol. I mean, it's alcohol. Uh, alcohol attracts water. And of course, water uh, and steel don't play well together. Uh, steel rusts, you know, in the presence of water and various other uh, factors. So, <clears throat> because of that, we want to try to get as much of that uh, alcohol or fuel out of that engine as we can when we're done flying for the day. Uh, the way I do it is I idle it dry. Uh, so basically, at the end of the day, and I'm done flying, I'll go ahead and you know, uh, empty the tank with my, with my fuel pump and then I'll disconnect the fuel feed line. Well, I've already done that because I'm defueling it. I'll leave it disconnected, uh, put the 
put the glow heat on, set the throttle to idle, and I'll fire it up until it just will not run anymore. And then once I've done that, I'll uh, I throw some after-run oil in there, uh, and then you know flip it over a few times to get that oil on all those parts. Because I don't want I don't m- mostly it's the bearings. Uh, the crankshaft rides on bearings in most of these engines, and those bearings are steel, and you know I don't want those to rust. So uh, I'll try to get you know as much of that fuel out of there so that I'm not attracting water to the steel, and then also get some lube on it. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about one of the airplanes I have, then that's uh, the motor's tightened up on it. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm guessing then that's what's happened on the inside because I've not... Uh, Maybe. Actually, yeah, I guess I can't say that for too, or too sure because I haven't ran this one yet. But it's it, right. it spins, you know, it's not locked up. Um, right. But it's just very tight compared to some of the other ones I've seen. So I'm, I'm guessing right. whoever ran that last... Probably didn't put the after-run oil in it then, and then that's kind of what's happening is that that moisture is kind of getting pulled out uh, of the maybe. air because of what was in there. <laughs> maybe. Maybe? So, maybe. Yeah, so, um, like, I, I, I know the engine you're talking about, uh, and I felt it too, and my gut instinct is that the bearings are in good shape. And the reason I say that is because even though the engine is tight to turn over um, and there's resistance to turning it over... Um, when it does spin, it spins smoothly. Like there's no grittiness. There's no yeah cat- catching or anything like that. While, yes, it's physically tight to turn over, I-, I feel like the bearings are probably in good shape. Either that or they've seized up solid and I'm spinning the crankshaft in the bearings, which that could be. I don't think it is because it would feel much tighter. My guess is that... They may have left fuel in it. Um, that that's a possibility, or uh, maybe they're using a fuel that's more caster. And caster over time, sort of, uh, it's hard to describe what it does, um, but it it sort of gets sticky and gummy, almost like an almost like a glue. And if you know, if allowed to sit in an engine for a lengthy period of time it can cause that sticky, hard-to-turn feeling. Luckily, uh, that um, that caster will liquefy, if, for lack of a better term, once fuel is introduced to the mix again, um, and it will start to spin freely again. And that's what I think is going to happen with that particular engine. Yeah, so it'll just kind of work itself out then once we get it going again. I think so, yep. I think, I think, it's, uh, I think it's safe. But cool. we'll see. Yeah, so I I didn't mean to get you off topic. Sorry, you were talking no, about okay. the, the after run oil, um, right. and you said you you put it in your engines when you're done running it. Where? Yep. How do you put it in your? I'm like, where does it go in? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, well, let me before I before I talk about where I squirt it. <laughs> um, after run oil is just basically a, a lightweight oil, and there's there's some on the market that's pre made that you can buy. There's uh, there's lots of home brews that people make. Myself, I, I've got the, you know, this, my own mix that I like to make. I use a 50-50 mix of uh, Marvel Mystery Oil and uh, ATF, Automatic Transmission Fluid. I mix those two together, and it's a nice lightweight oil that doesn't evaporate like WD-40 can. So, And you don't use a lot, so a little should last you a long time, right? Yeah, it doesn't take much. Um, I mean, I mean, more is certainly not going to hurt anything, but yeah, it just takes a few drops. And the way I do it is I open up the carb and I squirt, you know, however much in the carburetor. And then if I'm, if I'm really, no, I'm not going to fly this airplane again for a while, I'll go ahead and pull the glow plug and squirt a few drops down into the combustion chamber and I'll put the plug back on and I'll flip it over quite a few times to get that oil sort of distributed throughout the engine. And then it'll be, it'll be good to go for the next time I go fly. And so do you cover the carburetor like you're priming it or just let it go open? Nope. Nope. Just uh, I just leave it wide open and then uh, flip it over a bunch. And then when I'm done with that, I'll close the carburetor. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound too hard, really. It's not. It really unless you know, Unless you have a fully cowled in engine and then it gets a little more complicated. But you can sort of accomplish the same thing by squirting it down into the exhaust. You know, try to get the airplane at an angle where you can do that. Or you can physically, you know get that uh, and then you can you can flip the engine over and you can accomplish it that way too certainly much easier to do on a on an engine that is exposed but um, it's very important you should figure out a way to do it if you can 
Yeah. You know, talking about caring for the engine, you know, when you're done flying, you know, put some oil in it, uh, you know, to keep it, keep it fresh and keep the, keep the rusties away. Uh, there's other things you can do to take care of them too, right? Um, you know, you want to make sure the residual fuel is out of the engine, um, you know, either by my method, you know, idling it dry or, you know, some other method. Some people like to pull the glow plug and turn the thing upside down and flip it over until it flips dry, you know, whatever your method, um, get that unburnt fuel out of there. Some guys, you know, I've seen them, you know, when they get home, they'll fire up a compressor and blow the engine out. That's, that, you know, that works too. Whatever method you want to use, but try to get all that raw fuel out of there because you don't want it drawing moisture to those bearings. Um, and then once you've done that, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, keep them clean. I mean, uh, these these engines, they, they have these cast-in fins uh, for a reason. And when they're, when they're clogged with, you know, grass clippings or, you know, old, you know, oil that's gotten caught in there and dirt has been attracted to it and it's, you know, we depend on air to flow over these fins to help keep these engines cool because they're air-cooled, right? And mm -hmm. you get a little bit of cooling from the, from the fuel and oil that, that's in the, you know, the oil that's in the fuel, but uh, mostly they're air-cooled. So those fins, if they're blocked or if they're covered with gunk or whatever, they're not as efficient as keeping, you know, keeping the engine cool as a fresh, clean engine is. So not only do they look better when they're clean, they're more efficient <laughs> at keeping themselves cool, which, you know, a hot engine is going to wear out faster than a not hot engine. So yeah, so those fins then are kind of like a a, a built-in radiator. Exactly. Yeah, it's just yep. made to to dissipate the heat that's created. Yep, that's exactly right. Okay. Uh, so yeah, keep them keep them clean. I mean, I keep a I've got a little toothbrush, an old toothbrush in my flight box that if I, you know, if I see some gunk on the engine, you know, I'll brush it off. Um, and then you know every you know how often you know, whenever it, whenever it's needed, you know, I'll take, take the engine off the airplane, disassemble it and give it a good cleaning. And we'll talk about that in some other episode. Yeah. And actually, I guess, uh, you know, not only keeping it clean is going to make it last longer, but it's also going to keep everything around you clean. So like if you store right. them in your basement or if you have to transport them in your car, <laughs> um, you know, you don't want yes. grease all over the place. I, I would probably exactly. get in trouble if I brought our car home with a, a big grease spot you know, in right. the in the in the back of it or something. So yeah. just once again, kind of keeping that stuff clean makes it last yeah. longer, makes it look nicer, yeah. like you said, and uh, it will will help you not get in trouble too. I guess with the misses. <laughs> <laughs> right. I tell you what, something else that'll that'll keep you out of trouble is, uh, you know, these these big mufflers. You know, they have a. It's hard to get all the fuel out of them. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't like. I'll have an airplane sitting on my little rack here for months and. You know, I will have thought that I have gotten all the fuel and all the oil out of it, and then you know, a couple months later, <laughs> then I there's a drop. oil spot on the floor. Yeah, it's like, yep. Where the heck did that come from? So one one more little tip that'll that'll maybe keep you out of trouble is to, uh, you know, wad up a a small bit of paper towel and plug the exhaust. <laughs> yeah, cheap insurance. Very cheap. Very easy. Very quick. And yeah, that's a, that's right. a good idea too. So especially if you're carrying them downstairs or anything like that too, you know, if if I like I store mine in the basement, so getting down here you have to walk on on carpeted carpeted steps, yeah, and then carpeted too. basement to get back to the the hobby room, and yep. yeah, so that's that's a, a that's a good tip. I like that idea. Yeah. So the stuff I I use to clean my airplane, I get at Sam's. It's called uh, Spray Way Glass Cleaner. It's like this aerosol cleaner. It does a great job of getting uh, like the nitro fuel residue off the airframe stuff. So I always have a bottle of that with, or a can of that and a bunch of paper towels that I take to the field with me. Yeah. So yeah, one of the last things I do is I'll take a piece of paper towel, wad it up and stuff it in the exhaust. So I'm not dripping oil on the stairs, bringing the airplanes in. <laughs> yeah. Smart. And probably learned that the hard way, huh? I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Most of, uh, most of the things I've learned over the years has been the hard way. <laughs> Yeah, I try and listen to other people when they tell me to do something if it makes sense, you know. Right. So, and and that's one thing I did notice too. Like this airplane of yours that you still have over here, um, it's it's got that. Oh God, it didn't drip on your floor, did it? No, 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 no. It, it oh, didn't. Okay. But it, it it does have the the paper towel in the exhaust port. Okay. So, oh, good. yeah, or in the muffler. So <laughs> I kind of laughed at that. Yeah. Yeah. That's why. 
Yeah, I and that. Why. Well, I, I kind of figured that's what it was, and that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I talked a little bit about, um, you know, the stuff I take with me to the field. You know, the the cleaner and the paper towels and stuff. So, what are some uh, like tools you would need if you decide you want to get into the glow side of things? If you just have electric and you need to go the next step, you know, because that it kind of is mm-hmm. a next step. Um, what it are is. some special tools? for a nitro engine that you would need if you don't have it already? Well, chance, chances are you've already, I mean, if you're flying electric, you probably already have a lot of the a lot of the tools you're going to need. But uh, specifically, you'll, you'll need a, a glow plug wrench, you know, to pull the glow plug out of the engine, which is a, a 5 sixteenths in most cases, a uh, deep well socket or a specially designed tool uh, that you can get at the hobby shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, like I said, pretty much everything else you're already going to have. Maybe a, a piston locking tool is handy if you ever need to disassemble the engine, and that's basically just a, a quick little tool that goes into the where the glow plug goes, and it, it's got a shaft that goes down there and makes contact with the piston so that it kind of locks the crankshaft in place so that you can, you know, perform maintenance on the engine. And that and that's really it. Everything else, probably, if you're already flying, you're going to have, you know, a, a prop wrench, some Allen wrenches, and... Uh, you know, stuff like that. So what would the, the piston locking tool kind of help with? I mean, like, what what would you need that for? Yeah, so um, m- most most modern engines, um, the, uh, the propeller, uh, I don't want to say hub, uh, but, the, but the thrust face, if you will, that the, that the propeller gets uh, butted up against when you bolt it on, those are usually pressed on. And uh, they do make uh, special pullers for that. But if you have a piston locking tool, sometimes you can use a, uh, most times you can sort of use a strap wrench and turn against that uh, with, a, with the crankshaft locked. As long oh. as it's not the... Okay, I understand what you're talking about. The part that goes behind the propeller. Right, right. Okay. So uh, not, the, not the prop uh, nut that holds the propeller no, no, no. on. So the propeller is completely no. off, and it's the piece you see back there that kind of has the uh, the knurling on it to hold on to the the propeller. Right. Okay. Yep. I gotcha. Um, so that you know that that piston locking tool is sometimes helpful uh, in cases like that. Is uh, just just one method to lock the crankshaft in a in a in a position that allows you to um, put torque on that particular uh, piece of the engine. So, um, like, I, I have one, uh, but I can't remember the last time I used it because I have since bought the tools I needed to do the job correctly. So, um, hmm. but uh, but anyway, that aside from that, uh, mo- most of the other tools are going to be fairly standard, and if you're already flying electrics, you probably already have them. Okay. Um, what are some other, like, special considerations in with a nitro? Do you... Like I know with carburetors, sometimes you have to clean them. Do you need to worry about doing that at all? Um, you can. Like, uh, so we, you know, we fly on, well, I fly mostly off of grass fields, right? Mm-hmm. And so occasionally, you know, the, a propeller may get into some grass and throw some of that into the carburetor. And uh, usually grass will just get eaten by the engine without without too much fuss. But, you know, the dirt and the dust uh, can accumulate around uh, needle seats and and things like that, and and otherwise get into the um, the adjustment mechanism. You know the high speed and low speed needle, and in cases like that, the the only real way to to fix that is to clean it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, what what's involved with with cleaning it? Well, usually you can you can do it uh, without disassembling the carburetor, and the way I do it is. Uh, I'll make a note of the current needle settings. Uh, so what what that means is, without applying a lot of pressure, um, I'll take the high speed needle and I'll thread it all the way in until it stops, um, and I'll count how many turns that was, and then I'll back it all the way out, and then I'll do the same thing for the low speed needle, and then uh, with with all those orifices now completely open, I can usually take my uh, fuel pump and hook up the uh, to the fuel nipple of the, of the carburetor and sort of pressurize those orifices with raw fuel. And uh, usually it'll blow any of that gunk out of those orifices. And like I said, that you, that's one way you can do it without 
you know, disassembling the carburetor. And that's really the only thing that will ever really need cleaning aside from, you know, brushing off the loose stuff on the outside so it doesn't get, you know, sucked onto the inside. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you can, you can do that usually without disassembling it. Now, if you've got something really stubborn in there, then, um, yeah, you'll, you'll have to take the carb apart and, you know, figure out what the, what the blockage is. But, um, understand that, you know, if it gets to that point, you really need to understand how the carburetor works so that you don't do any damage when you're trying to, you know, when you're trying to clear it. Yeah. So if you're not comfortable doing that, probably reach out to somebody else that is. Right. Just to be yeah. safe. And you'll know, like if you have, you know, you'll know if something is going on with the carburetor because, you know, one second or one minute, one flight, whatever, it was running fine. And now all of a sudden I can't seem to get it tuned correctly or now for some strange reason it's running really, really lean when it was perfect before. Uh, usually that's your, you know, first sign that there's something going on with the carburetor. Yeah. And so before you, you clean them though, do you take them off the engine? Uh, it depends. Like if, um, if I can perform that operation without getting fuel on, you know, bare wood and make just generally making a mess. Um, like if I can, you know, stuff a bunch of paper towels around to do that, I'll do it in the airplane, uh, without removing the carburetor. But if it's in a position or if it's in an airplane that, you know, doing this, it's going to, you know, pull, you know, raw fuel and oil are going to pull in the engine compartment or whatever, then I'll, I'll either take the engine off the airplane or I'll, you know, if I can, I'll take the carburetor off. Uh, a lot of these carburetors are, are, um, you know, they're bolted onto the crankcase and then there's an O-ring between the crankcase and the uh, carburetor. Uh, and that serves two functions, honestly. It's, it's number one, to seal, you know, so you don't have an air leak between the carburetor and the, um, and the engine, but it also serves as kind of a, an insulator, if you will, so you're not transferring the heat from the crankcase to the carburetor and boiling the fuel and stuff like that. So, oh, okay. If you have, yeah, if you have to take the carburetor off, be really, really careful about that O-ring because it is a pretty important little um, piece of the entire, you know, operation. So, like, do do carburetors wear out? I mean, do you ever have to replace them? Yeah, they do. Uh, you know, if you're if you're heavy-handed with um, with your needle valve um, operation, you know, if you if you're running it in and using too much force to, like, if you're taking, you know, measuring your needle settings and you run that thing in, I mean, these parts mostly uh, the orifices and needles are brass, so they will swell, right? So if you run that needle in, you're you're damaging the seat and and this sort of thing. So occasionally, you you know, if you're in the hobby long enough and you you know and you do these sorts of things. Um, then yeah, a carb replacement will be necessary, and it's it's simple enough to do. Uh, most carbs are either bolt on with a you know with a couple of screws, or they have like this cool little uh, pinch block with a nut, and you know basically remove the screws or loosen up that nut and pull the carburetor off, being careful of the O ring. And usually, a new carburetor will come with a new O ring. So then, like. If you have to replace the carburetor, though, because something's wrong, is that most of the time because something you've done to it? Or, I mean, do they actually wear out at, like, faster no, rate can, than the actual engine does itself? No, no, they can they can wear out. I mean, because, you know, like, for instance, uh, you know, this this carburetor I'm looking at here on my old Irvine 40, it's a, it's a rotary, you know, it's a barrel that rotates inside mm -hmm. the... Um, so, over time, you know, if you've got enough use on the engine, enough open and closing cycles... Um, they'll wear and then you'll develop an air leak around that, that barrel. And then, you know, air leaks are not good for tuning. So yeah, yeah then simply due to wear, you'll have to replace it. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. I, I always kind of figured carburetors being as simple as they are for something like that would not wear out. But I guess yeah, a lot of times these engines though will last like a yes. long, 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 long oh, time. Yeah. yeah. Ch chances of, of most modelers, uh, running an engine to the point where you have to replace a carburetor because of wear, uh, just from use, are I would say rare. Uh, m more often than not, you'll have to replace a carburetor because, you know, I've ham-fisted putting it together or whatever, you know. <laughs> or because you bought it from a flea market or from a, a swap meet and you don't know the history and somebody else did that to it and that's why they got rid of it. Right, <laughs> right. So yep. is there any way, like... 
obviously if you're bringing that up, so if you're at a swap meet or something and there's a, a box full of engines, you know, you can mm-hmm. usually tell right by, by spinning them how much compression they have and, and the bearings and, and all that. Is there any yeah. easy way to check a carburetor or not? Unfortunately, there's not an easy way. I mean, you aside from just, you know, moving the throttle arm, making sure that the thing moves, that's obviously the first test. Uh, and then you could... You know, if you really, really wanted to test them, you could have like a piece of uh, uh, clean fuel tubing with you uh, and, you know, take a length of that, hook it onto the, the inlet nipple of the carburetor and then the other end to your mouth and, and blow through it and then gradually open the throttle and you should gradually be able to blow more and more air through it. And then when you close the throttle, it should close off that, you know, that that uh, that should that valve should close off the yeah. airflow. Uh, yeah, that, okay. You could do that test, but otherwise, yeah. Until you've, until you've heard it running, you're never gonna know for sure. Yeah. So, is it best to stay away from secondhand engines then, or if you kind of know oh, no. motors, it's no. I, I love seeing boxes of engines at swap. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have an addiction. I mean, I've got a whole shelf of them here, and then I've got a whole shelf of them back there. I mean, I love when I go to swap meets. That's like the first thing I go to. I, I look for the guy that's just got a bunch of old engines on his table, and then I'm like, in heaven. Uh, that's my. <laughs> you spend thing. the whole time there. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I could. Yeah. Yeah, you you do have a lot of extra engines, so I don't think you're ever gonna have to really worry about uh, running out. No, no. I keep getting more. I just, I just ordered two more. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's because those two have to match. They do. But they do. that's that's another topic. I don't want to get off too much on it. Um, (laughs) so fuel, what kind of, uh, what kind of fuel does, uh, do these nitro engines use? Well, we, we, I touched on it before and it's a, it's a, it's a glow fuel, like for our, we're not talking about gas engines. We're talking about, you know, glow fuel engines. Uh, and it's a fuel that's basically got three parts. It's a, it's methanol, uh, some lubricant of some kind, oil, and a little bit of nitromethane in most cases. Uh, so that's uh, that's what it is. It's alcohol, oil, and nitro, in that order. <laughs> so what is the like? Why? What does each one do? Yeah. So alcohol, um, that's what's required to burn uh, and keep the whole suck, squeeze, bang, blow process going. Right. Uh, we need a little bit of oil, like we mentioned before. You know, these engines don't have a wet sump. They don't have a a crankcase full of oil for lubrication. So we get the lubrication out of the fuel. So that's oil, either castor or synthetic. Um, most often it's uh, it's a combination of both of those. And then uh, and then some nitromethane in various percentages. Uh, not always, though. There is some fuel out there, um, FAI blend, uh, that has no nitromethane. And the engines seem to run just fine on it. So what would the, what would the plus be to that? So nitromethane, um, it's it's kind of like nitrous oxide. It uh, it adds density to the fuel air charge, um, so that uh, it um, it's hard for me to explain. I think you probably understand it better than I do because uh, um, we were talking about it before, but uh, it it basically allows the engine to run a little bit cooler. Um, by allowing you to have a little bit more of that of that oxidizer oxygen in this case uh, in the intake charge, uh, it makes the engine a little more efficient. Well, and kind the of. the kind of way that I understand it too, so the the nitromethane um, carries its own oxygen. So right. with it having oxygen in it. Um, you don't have to rely as much on the oxygen from the air outside because really the air we breathe is mostly nitrogen. Um, but the oxygen that is in it is what helps the, um, you know, the fuel burn. So Mm -hmm. with not having to have so much of the, the, uh, atmospheric air pretty much in the cylinder gives it more room for fuel. So if you get more fuel in there then that is why you get uh, more power out of it. Uh, kind of like the, 
uh, kind of like the uh, the nitro funny cars, you know, they dump mm-hmm. a lot of fuel through there um, because they have such a high level of the the nitro methane that they run that that oxygen pretty much is is flowing in in that as opposed to the air that we breathe. Um, so you can get a lot more power out of it that way. So that's what right. that's how I understand what the nitro methane does to it. Yeah, yeah, and that that was a very um, much easier explanation than mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So, but that's yeah, that's my understanding. Right or wrong, right. I don't know. But that's that's kind of how I get. No, it. I think I think that's right. But like I said, your your explanation was much easier to understand than mine. Uh, to talk a little bit about the the oil uh, that's in our fuel. You know, I, I said there's castor and and then there's synthetic and. Most fuels are kind of a combination of the two, but there are some purists out there who still who still blend their own fuel uh, because they like straight up castor. Um, I guess I don't really have an opinion. Uh, you know, I I try to take care of my engines, so I, I don't have issues with uh, carbon buildup and varnishing and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, um, but there are those out there who swear that uh, that castor doesn't. Uh, you know, its viscosity doesn't break down with heat the way the synthetics can. Uh, so that's why most manufacturers, you know, blend the two, you know, castor and synthetic oils together uh, to get the benefits of castor. But the kind of a downside to castor is that it, it, it kind of leaves a brown varnishy film on stuff, especially when it gets hot, and gets baked on, and it's really, really hard to get off. Uh, it, it just looks bad. Uh, and it does it does carbon up a little bit more, I think, than the, than the synthetic stuff does. But uh, either way, if you stay on top of the maintenance and uh, put your engines away properly, you won't you won't really have any issues with that. Yeah. So pretty much the easiest thing is just kind of buy whatever airplane fuel there is, because I know there's a, a different uh, nitro fuel for airplanes than there is for like RC cars too, and that all, right. if I remember right, just depends on the amount of nitromethane that's in with it. Um, right. I don't know if there's any difference in the oil or, or the methanol right. or, or whatnot, but I know it's a, a different percentage of nitro. Yeah, P- pretty much the standard uh, the standard fuel that most uh, uh, model airplane guys are going to use is going to be some, you know, either 5, 10, maybe 15% nitro. And most of those fuels come, you know, with a fixed amount of oil in them, usually somewhere around 18% oil. Um, the car guys, yeah, I think they use 20% nitro and maybe a little bit, a little bit less oil. Maybe I don't know, but yeah, there's whatever is being sold out there for airplanes is, generally speaking, is is a pretty good bet that it's safe for your airplane engine. Yeah, it'll it'll pretty much cover any uh, manufacturer's yeah. recommendations for what the what to run through it. So it'll yep. be pretty safe. Yep. Yep. Um, I think the last thing I'd like to barely touch on because we're running long on this one too. Um, okay. Engine break-in. So let's let's say instead of buying, uh, you know, an engine at a swap meet, you buy one brand new. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't just want to go out, start it up, put it on your airplane, and and run it. Uh, what's the what's the normal process for breaking an engine in, and why is it uh, why does it need to be done? Right. So like like what I was talking about earlier. Uh, most modern engines are that ABC type construction, so they you know they require or they depend on that that precise fit of the piston in the in the sleeve, and to achieve that, it has to be broken in in a very very specific manner, and the manufacturer's instructions will do a fantastic job of explaining it, but uh, I'll do I'll try to do a quick one. Um, the parts have to be at the proper operating temperature to break in properly because that's the operating temperature that they're designed to run at. So that's the operating temperature that the tolerances are, are designed to run at. So uh, the break-in procedure for an ABC engine is really more about uh, temperature than it is about wearing the parts in. Uh, so the engine has to be run at its proper operating temperature for the parts to wear in properly. If, uh, if the engine is, is run too long at too cool a temperature, the parts are going to wear prematurely, and you're going to have a you know a poor running engine in a short amount of time. Uh, whereas you know, <clears throat> somewhat more standard construction that's not quite as common today, a piston with an actual compression ring on it, that actually de- depends on um, 
that physical wear in of the ring to the sleeve or the or the piston or the cylinder wall and and that requires a lot of lubrication during that process so we run them really really extra rich with really no no regard really to the temperature because we're not worried about breaking those in at that very very precise you know operating temperature range so there's two different ways to break them in and your engine uh, manufacturer will tell you how they want you to break that engine in and you should follow it to the letter yeah um, and I guess, you know, I, I did say something about brand new engines. This also applies to a rebuild engine. So if you resleeve yes. a, if you resleeve your piston or you, you yep. resleeve your cylinder and put a new piston in, it's the exact same thing, you know, treat it like a brand new engine. Cause pretty much it is. Um, That's exactly right. The, the worn out pieces have been replaced and the, and the new pieces that have to fit nice and tight, uh, have been replaced right. and, and, and it needs to follow that, that same procedure. Um, yep. so yeah, these can be rebuilt, you know, if, if you do run yeah. into a, a, a place to where it's not running right, you don't have compression, something's wrong, the engine's not the junk. Shot. Uh, yeah, you know, the engine's not junk. It's fixable, uh, and it's not yeah. actually that difficult. Um, no, it's not. I don't want to get into that in this one, okay. but I, I think that would be a good uh, another episode to, to kind of talk about how to rebuild one of these engines. Um, yeah. So, okay. yeah, maybe we can do that sometime, but... Uh, uh, for now, I think I've covered everything I want to cover. Do you have anything else you want to say? No, no. I think uh, I think we've kind of given a good general overview and why these things are so awesome. <laughs> yeah, we, we've got into it uh, a lot more than I expected to. So, um, sorry. Like, no, no, no. It's it's fine. Um, I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, okay. I don't know if anybody is still listening other than me right now, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> well, I'm listening. Um, well, that's that's true. Uh, but yeah, so. I guess uh, for that, I'm going to end this one now. Uh, thanks okay. for listening, everybody. Uh, I'm Ron. And I'm Tom. Until next time, goodbye. See you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the RC Plane Lab podcast. For topic suggestions, to ask questions, or to give any feedback, connect with us at rcplanelab.com or email us direct at either ron at rcplanelab.com or tom at rcplanelab.com. You can also text us or leave us a voicemail at 818-351-9846. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, may your landings be gentle.